2: In 1934, P.L. Travers published Mary Poppins, the story of a magical and mysterious nanny who flies in with the east wind to lead the Banks children of London into some unusual adventures. The book became hugely popular, and among its many fans were Walt Disney's two daughters. For 20 years, Disney tried to persuade Travers to let him turn her book into a film, but she was extremely reluctant to entrust her beloved character to him the 2013 film Saving Mr. Banks tells the story of their fraught negotiations.
0: This entire script is flimflam. Unlike yourself, Mary Poppins is the very enemy of whimsy and sentiment.
2: No
3: whimsy or sentiment, says the woman who sent a flying nanny with a talking
0: umbrella to save the children. You think Mary Poppins has come to save the children, Mr. Disney? Oh,
2: dear. According to Saving Mr. Banks, Travers and Disney approach an understanding when Disney starts to see the real story behind the book. Mary Poppins was inspired by P.L. Travers' father and by her struggles to come to terms with his untimely death. Disney builds the film adaptation's climax around the Banks children's harsh father and his ultimate redemption.
0: It's him this is all about, is it? All of it, everything. It's not the children she comes to save.
2: It's their father. It's your father. Mary Poppins may be a children's book, but it's the grown-ups that it heals. Is this still true today, as children's literature finds a wider and older audience? Does children's literature, in fact, save the adults? Welcome to Ministry of Ideas, a podcast about the ideas that shape our world. I'm Zachary Davis. In this episode, we look at the growing phenomenon of adults reading books written supposedly for children, and ask why children's literature holds such power and meaning for readers of all ages. The New York Times began printing its first bestseller list in 1931. The list was divided and subdivided several times over the following decades, into fiction, nonfiction, advice, how-to, and miscellaneous. In 2000, the New York Times announced another significant change. It would begin printing a separate bestseller list for children's books. The catalyst for this decision was the Harry Potter series by J.K. Rowling. The first book was published in the United States as Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone in September 1998. In August 1999, it topped the New York Times best-selling fiction list. By June 2000, the series had been on the bestseller list for 79 straight weeks. Publishers started to complain that these and other children's books kept, quote, deserving adult books off the lists. And so the new list was created, and Harry Potter went from being called simply fiction to being called children's fiction. Through the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance, there was no separate category of children's literature. Children mainly read edited excerpts from the literature adults read, such as Aesop's Fables or Virgil's Aeneid. But in the 1600s, English Puritans placed new emphasis on early childhood education. The philosophers John Locke and Jean-Jacques Rousseau theorized that children would learn more if they were engaged by their lessons and advocated entertaining forms of instruction. Books began to be written specifically for young children, combining stories, poetry, and pictures with useful moral and religious lessons. An industry of children's literature grew up in England in the 1700s, influenced by the printer John Newbery. Over the next two centuries, the range of children's genres expanded to include fantasy, fairy tales, verse, family stories, and adventure. The most innovative and enduring works from this period include texts like Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, The Railway Children, The Secret Garden, The Wind in the Willows, and Peter Pan, books now said to constitute the golden age of children's literature. But even as children's genres developed, there was not a clear division between adult literature and children's literature in the 19th century. Many adults were enthusiastic readers of children's books, especially the boys' adventure story. And even when novels weren't specifically for young readers— authors often aim to make their books appropriate and enjoyable for an entire family. To the novelist Henry James, this was a problem. In 1899, James wrote an essay called The Future of the Novel. Children's literature scholar Christina Phillips Mattson explains.
0: Henry James wrote that we it's time to put away childish things if the novel is going to survive because at this point we can't continue to write works where the stories has to be limited by the strictures that were necessary for women and children.
2: When authors wrote for both mature and immature readers, James said, quote, too many sources of interest were neglected. The solution he proposed was not to discuss these subjects more freely with children, but to create a separate literature for adults only. Writers like E.M. Forster, Virginia Woolf, D.H. Lawrence, and James Joyce took up the call for a new, more sophisticated kind of novel, and they paved the way for increasingly experimental adult literature. At the same time, Phillips Matson argues, children's literature after World War I became, overall, less inventive and less challenging. Children's books featured more stereotypically childish characters, more prosaic settings, and unrealistically upbeat endings. James's essay was a turning point in literary history. It helped make widespread the idea that adults and children ought to have separate literatures, that serious adults shouldn't read children's books, and that children needed simpler books because they couldn't appreciate complex works of art. Today, however, we may be living through another turning point. In her book, Children's Literature Grows Up, Phillips Mattson argues that a revolution is occurring in contemporary children's literature.
0: I think we're living in a new golden age of children's literature. It's a rebirth of that time where contemporary writers like Rowling and Pullman and Valente, Neil Gaiman, among many others, have rediscovered The inventiveness and complexity and literariness that made novels like Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan so unique and so refreshing for their time. But now there's this increase in scope and content and significance of the works that are written today.
2: What's most significant about this revolution is that it undoes Henry James's stark division. It challenges the very notion that books must be either for adults or for children. Phillips Matson attributes this change especially to J.K. Rowling.
0: Rowling is abolishing the divide that's long existed between literature for children and literature for adults. She's incorporating previous defining characteristics of children's fantasy literature with the fairy tales and mythologies and legends and histories that she so expertly weaves into her texts. And so in this way, she taps into our cultural memory like the greatest children's literature books do. But with her technical skill, she gives us the realism and verisimilitude that attempt to portray all the varieties of human experience, which, you know, has become the adult no- novel's defining feature.
2: Rowling combines the complexity of adult fiction with something that other sophisticated novels often lack, a story. Many lauded 20th century works, from Finnegan's Wake, to Waiting for Godot, to Gravity's Rainbow, can feel inaccessible to readers because of the way they abandon traditional narrative structures. Consider David Foster Wallace's magnum opus, Infinite Jest. Published in 1996, it has sold over a million copies and was hailed by some critics as, quote, the Central American novel of the past 30 years. But the work is also an 1,100-page encyclopedia of musings, digressions, and footnotes. And it's hard to follow the narrative arc. Michiko Kakutani, reviewing the book in the New York Times, wrote, quote, At the end, that word machine is simply turned off, leaving the reader, at least the old-fashioned reader, who harbors the vaguest expectations of narrative connections and beginnings, middles, and ends, suspended in midair and reeling from the random muchness of detail and incident. Phillips Mattson finds that many contemporary adult works also emphasize sophisticated style over story. Adult
0: literature has become so self-conscious now, so wrapped up in itself, and so desperate to be sophisticated and complex and profound that it completely neglects
2: the story. Author Philip Pullman agrees. His famous trilogy, His Dark Materials, is, like Harry Potter, ostensibly for children. But when the BBC ran a survey in 2003 to find Britain's best-loved novel, His Dark Materials came in third, just behind Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. In accepting the Carnegie Medal in 1996, Pullman said, quote, In adult literary fiction, stories are there on sufferance. Other things are felt to be more important. Technique, style, literary knowingness. Present day novelists, he said, are, quote, embarrassed by stories. If they could write novels without stories in them, they would. Sometimes they do. But what characterizes the best of children's authors is that they're not embarrassed to tell stories. They know how important stories are, There's a hunger for stories in all of us. Adults, too. If the recent history of television is anything to go by, Pullman is right. The popularity of long-form television series like The Wire, Breaking Bad, House of Cards, and Stranger Things reveals how much we crave stories and how much time we devote to following them. In December 2017, The Atlantic ran a story entitled Why So Many Adults Love Young Adult Literature. The article cited a study that found 55% of readers of young adult fiction, known as YA, are adults. In a 2014 piece entitled Against YA, writer Ruth Graham argued that adults should feel embarrassed about reading YA because the enjoyment they seek is purely escapist. The stories in YA fiction are simple, uncritical, excluding the complications of the real world, to dish out neat endings and instant gratification. Graham has a legitimate point. Even unapologetic lovers of YA acknowledge that they often seek out the genre for comfort and pleasure, a nostalgic return to a safer, less cynical stage of life. One reviewer wrote, quote, At its heart, YA aims to be pleasurable. These books have a way of cocooning their protagonists, navigating them, and by extension the reader, to safety and sometimes real happiness. YA author Non Pratt responded to Graham, quote, I do not read novels to transcend my intellectual boundaries. There is no intrinsically beneficial reason why I should value complexity over simplicity or ambiguity over clarity. But this preference for simplicity over complexity is just what literary critic Harold Bloom laments about the Harry Potter phenomenon. To Bloom, the book represents a dumbing down of culture. Instead of seeking more difficult pleasures, children and adults are turning to books that make no demands on the reader and have no redeeming educational use. Here's Bloom discussing Harry Potter with Charlie Rose on the latter's self-titled PBS talk show in 2000.
0: People tell me, well, at least the child is reading, to which my answer is, no, the child isn't reading. It's really just slop. And I do not think it does anyone any good at all. Okay, but then what are you saying? I
2: mean, are millions and millions and millions
0: of people wrong? I'm afraid so.
2: In Bloom's view, Rowling only appeals to readers because, quote, she feeds a vast hunger for unreality. But is Bloom's definition of reality the right one? In 1798, poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge And William Wordsworth published their revolutionary book of poetry, Lyrical Ballads. Their aim was to leave behind artificial diction and subject matter and focus instead on the real. But the two authors interpreted real differently. For Wordsworth, real meant, quote, incidents and situations from common life. For Coleridge, what made a literary work realistic wasn't that it excluded the supernatural. It was that it showed how a person would truly feel if she were ever in a supernatural situation herself. Philip Pullman has said of his own work: quote, His Dark Materials is not fantasy, but stark realism. It is realistic in psychological terms. This psychological realism defines books like His Dark Materials and Harry Potter, for readers and authors alike. Here is J.K. Rowling speaking on a Harry Potter Christmas special on the BBC in 2001. Death is an extremely important theme throughout all seven books, I would say possibly the most important theme. If you are
1: writing about evil, which I am, and if you are writing about someone who's essentially a psychopath, you have a duty to show the real evil of taking human life.
2: It was the reality of evil and death that J.K. Rowling wanted to portray, especially because Six months after she first drafted the opening of Harry Potter, her mother died of multiple sclerosis. Here's Rowling in an interview with Oprah Winfrey on The Oprah Show in 2010.
1: I I, I don't think it's too strong to say there wouldn't be Harry Potter. There wouldn't, You know, the books are what they are because she died. At least half of Harry's journey is, is a journey to um, deal with death in its many forms, what it does to the living, what it means to die, um, what, what survives death. In
2: his 1996 Carnegie Medal acceptance speech, Philip Pullman said that, quote, There are some themes, some subjects, too large for adult fiction. They can only be dealt with adequately in a children's book. Pullman explained further to the BBC4's Omnibus program.
0: One mistake that adults used to make about children's books is to think that children's books deal with trivial things, little things that please little minds and little concerns about little people. And so nothing could be further from the truth. Quite the contrary, it's been my uh, observation that a lot of highly praised adult books, or highly successful adult books, uh, in recent years have dealt with the trivial things, such as, does my bum look big in this, will my favourite football team win the cup, and, oh dear, my girlfriend's left me, whatever am I going to do? Whereas the children's books have dealt with ultimate questions, where do we come from? What's the nature of being a human being? What must I do to be good? These are profound questions, very deeply important
2: questions, and they're being dealt with largely not in the, in the books that adults read, but in the books that children read. One reason that children's literature can grapple with things so far beyond the everyday is that its settings often leave the everyday behind. After Henry James's essay... Adult literature meant serious literature, and serious meant realistic. Fantasy was increasingly marginalized from the realm of respectable fiction. As a result, gifted fantasy writers ended up creating much of the 20th century's most groundbreaking children's literature. J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, Madeleine L'Engle's A Wrinkle in Time. Fantasy is also a crucial genre for those authors who challenge the boundary between children's and adult literature today. Rowling, Pullman, Neil Gaiman, Catherine Valente, and Suzanne Collins, to name a few. Part of the power of fantasy is that it can convey meaning in ways that realism alone cannot. One of fantasy's most powerful tools is the archetype. An image, character, setting, or event That represents some universal aspect of the human condition, such as sin, death, or redemption. Certain archetypes and symbols have permeated Western literature since its beginnings, and skilled authors know how to incorporate them to infuse new books with cultural depth. The serpent, for instance, is an archetypal symbol of evil. In the book of Genesis, a serpent tempts Adam and Eve to commit the first sin, So when a serpent kills the queen in C.S. Lewis's The Silver Chair, or when it is revealed that the symbol of Slytherin House in Harry Potter is a snake, the reader remembers her past encounters with the serpent symbol and gains a deeper understanding of the new text at hand. Realistic fiction purports simply to represent the world as it is. Its objects don't stand for anything. But in fantasy, archetypes invite us to read the world metaphorically, and to ponder a symbol's many possible meanings. M.G. Prezioso, a researcher of early childhood education and literacy at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, has studied the complex symbolism of the Lord of the Rings.
3: In Lord of the Rings, I think this quest to destroy the ring And the ring itself, which is greed, it can be power, it can be political corruptness, it could also be um, outside of the realm of politics to represent some sort of injustice that we're trying to overthrow. There's a variety of ways of looking at what the ring is and what the quest to destroy it and recreate the world looks like. And so I I think that's one of many examples in those texts in that trilogy where, where you have that sort of abstract to metaphor to real life application.
2: When a text offers a deeply resonant image, its meanings reverberate into the reader's life. When I read The Lord of the Rings, I'm not just thinking about what the ring means to Frodo, I'm also thinking about what evil or death or power mean for me in my life. Children's fantasy literature invites us to ask those questions.
3: We live out our life and make sense of the world, not only in story, but in metaphor. And I think that a book like The Lord of the Rings, those three mini epics, they're abstract as much as they are realistic. And I think there's something about that where they can be applied to a variety of life circumstances because they're fantastical and they're not specifying what exact metaphor they're trying to reach. And so I think that maybe in a realistic story that's geared towards a very specific person or group or place, you don't get that same sort of universal appeal.
2: This theory that the symbolic quality of fantasy fiction gives it a nearly unlimited range of possible meanings is part of the philosophy behind the podcast Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, which is hosted, like us, at Harvard Divinity School. Hosts Vanessa Zoltan and Caspar Turcaille read Harry Potter as Christians would read the Bible or Muslims would read the Quran, uncovering new meanings each time they revisit the book. Turkile explains the theory behind this practice. We talk a lot about faith
1: um, in the sense that we want to return to this text time and time again because we believe it has something to teach us. So we we talk about the idea that, um, you know, the more time
2: you spend with a text, the more blessings it will give you. Zoltan and Terkayl use a traditional practice called Lectio Divina, meaning sacred reading. They choose a passage and analyze it four different ways. So we think about
1: what does this phrase literally mean? What's the kind of allegorical meaning? What, what images or stories or songs does this remind us of? Then we think about what does it remind us of in our own life experience? You know, have we been in a situation like this?
2: As Terkail and Zoltan produced the show, they found that hundreds of their listeners feel the same way about Harry Potter. They, too, engage with the text this way. It's been amazing
1: to, to hear from our listeners about how they, how they already engaged with Harry Potter. I mean, one of the reasons we kind of dared to do it was that people were already saying, you know, my mother died from cancer. And through those last few months, I just kept rereading the Harry Potter books, or I just had a breakup and I reread book six, like five times in a row, or like people were already turning to these texts in a way that seemed to be doing much more than entertainment in their lives.
2: The fourth part of Lectio Divina has to do with moving from the text to the world.
1: Traditionally, you would ask, you know, what
2: is God asking
1: you to do through this text? We phrase it a little differently. We say, you know, what's the text inviting us to do?
2: One group that has accepted the book's invitation to action is the Harry Potter Alliance, an activist group that channels members' passion for the series into a passion for real-world causes of the kind the book's characters might support. One campaign was entitled, What Would Dumbledore Do? On March twenty-fourth, twenty 2018, thousands of people across the world joined in March for Our Lives, a demonstration advocating stronger gun control after a mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. On March 26, CNN ran a story with the headline, Harry Potter Inspired the Parkland Generation. Parkland activist Emma Gonzalez compared the student protesters to Dumbledore's army, a group of young people who rose up to fight when no one else would. If we want to know why adults love children's literature, this may be the most powerful reason of all. Our own moral sense and motivations are shaped and inspired by the big questions that children's literature asks and the moral battles its characters fight. Christina Phillips-Matson explains.
0: When you finish a
2: children's book, I think most of the time you're not holding
0: an object that's morally neutral. You've been moved in some way or you've learned something usually children's books challenge us to be better and adult novels don't really do that anymore and i think i think that's an innate human need
2: these moral battles are at the heart of many of the stories we love most from fairy tales like beauty and the beast and cinderella to novels like the lord of the rings the chronicles of narnia and harry potter
0: i wish the ring had never come to me
2: wish none
3: of
0: this had happened.
3: So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do
0: with the time that is given to us. Ella, my darling, I want to tell you a secret. A great secret that will see you through all the trials that life can offer. You must always remember this. Have courage.
2: Rise, kings and queens of Narnia. All of you.
1: I do not think I am ready.
0: It's for that
2: very reason I know you are. These moments, these stories, have the potential to transform us, as M.G. Prezioso describes
3: it's the same reason that it somehow sometimes gets a lot of criticism, which is that, oh, it's oversimplified or, oh, well, life is not reduced to good versus evil. But I do think that there's something appealing about seeing the world not only as it is, but how it could be or should be. And I think that when you read those kinds of books and those kinds of stories, it's inevitably inspiring because you see what can be and you are then given this vision and trying to figure out different ways to carry that vision out and to make that vision a reality. And I think that I think that in some ways there's no better genre for that than
2: children's literature. That's one of the greatest gifts children's literature can give us, seeing the world not only as it is, but as it could be. In her 2008 commencement speech at Harvard, J.K. Rowling said this.
1: We do not need magic to transform our world. We carry all the power we need inside ourselves already. We have the power to imagine better.
2: We as adults turn to children's literature because it helps us imagine better. When we read these stories and find these noble characters, they inspire us to be like them. Our heroes may come from fictional worlds, but when we follow their model, we can change the real world. We can ensure that goodness and heroism aren't just a fantasy. This episode was produced by Maria Devlin McNair. Ministry of Ideas is an initiative of the Religious Literacy Project at Harvard Divinity School. It is produced by Nick Anderson, Galen Beebe, Zachary Davis, and Pallavi Kathamasu. Sound design and music is by Steve LaRosa. Special thanks to Alex Kingsbury and Dante Ramos from the Boston Globe Ideas section for their ongoing support. If you enjoy this podcast... You can support us by sharing the show with your friends, reviewing us on iTunes, or becoming a patron on Patreon. For more information, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. You can connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. I want to tell you about a dazzling episode of the Hub & Spoke podcast, The Lonely Palette. Host Tamar Avishai challenged a hundred of her listeners to back her on Patreon, and in exchange, she decided to explore the classic work of kitsch, dogs playing poker. The resulting episode is a phenomenal exploration of art, culture, and socioeconomic class, and it also features a bunch of poker playing dogs. Check out thelonelypalette.com to tune in Or anywhere podcasts are available. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.